Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm, the I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I want down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't What you doing down here, you surely man? It's second captain's football at the Irish Times after another chastening week for English teams in the Champions League. Well, Chelsea were chasing. Manchester United seemed somewhat buoyed by a one-all draw at home, which is as good an indication of any as to where the club's head is at these days. Dion Fanning wrote in the Sunday Independent the weekend about the moment that he felt has maybe best summed up what's going on at Manchester United, and that was when Liverpool probably should have been awarded a fourth penalty at Old Trafford, but the referee hesitated because he kind of thought, well, maybe I shouldn't have given that third and... Four seems a little excessive. Yeah. Not a good sign for them. No, this is another one that they draw at home at Bayern Munich and it's seen as a cause for celebration. Yeah, I mean, and, and it was because I think, uh, and although I'm, I'm talking off the top of my head here, but I think it was the longest odds they've, there's ever been on Manchester United winning a home match for that game. And Bayern were 2-1 to one on to win the match. To win. Not just to, you know, not lose. To win the match. And... I think United were backable at six or seven to one, something crazy like that, um, which is insane. I mean, that's a lot of, uh, you know, that's the kind of odds you might get on uh, Spurs at Old Trafford. Mm. You know, not Manchester United. So, yeah, it was, uh, I think one all draw in the, in the circumstances was a great result. Chelsea's defeat, was a, is it a turning point in European football? Well, it was absolutely amazing. I mean, I've watched this match again, Owen, last night. Again, when I say again, I, I didn't get to watch it when it was on live on. I recorded it and watched it again. I was so interested to see what happened. Sure. And, uh, I mean, for a Jose Mourinho team to concede a goal like that in the last, in injury time, in a Champions League knockout tie, it's no wonder that Mourinho stormed off immediately once the goal was scored. He, he went over to Blanc. He, he sort of congratulated it. He sort of hugged him as though to say, well done, you're through. Well done. Great job. And then just immediately disappeared off yeah. down the tunnel before the final whistle. He likes to do that now, it seems, in victory or defeat. And the defeats are becoming a bit more um, bit more frequent for him. And also what's becoming more frequent is this new um, sarcasm 
that he directs. Not, I mean, another manager who I'd associate with, with sarcasm, who, who I don't think was quite as funny about it when he did it, was Rafael Benitez. But with him, it was invariably, it was directed at, you know, his enemies, Alex Ferguson, journalists he didn't like, you know, this kind of stuff. But Mourinho is his own players. <laughs> and, okay, we'll, we'll hear Mourinho. This is him just talking about the goals that, that Chelsea conceded. The game was under control. We had the 2-1 to score in the end of, uh, of the first half, which would be a fantastic result, obviously. For the second half, we didn't score. After that, we scored in our own goal. And after that, the third goal... <laughs> it's a joke. It's not a goal, it's a joke. That's okay, that's not too sarcastic. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it, the goal itself was, was actually brilliant. It was yeah. a brilliant piece of skill by uh, Javier Pastore. But, I mean, we'll get... We'll get okay, we, we've got another Mourinho clip here. Now, here he is talking about his... You, you'll hear who he's talking about. Fernando Torres did not start this game, but did come on as a sub and ran around gamely, but... Didn't really, didn't really do anything. Here's Mourinho. Here's what Mourinho had to say after the match. I'm not happy with my strikers' performances, so I have to try things. And with Andre, at least I know that uh, we have one more player to to have the ball. We have one more player to associate with uh, with the other players, and even not being dangerous because uh, he's not a striker. He can associate, and the team can have control of uh, of the ball possession, like uh, like we had. He's basically saying that Fernando Torres has no idea how to play football. It's like this. I'm I'm picking Shirley, Andre Shirley. He's talking about there because he uh, okay. He's not a striker. He's not dangerous as a striker. He's not going to score you half of but the he can at least play football. So he can hold the ball up. He can associate with the other players. He can be you know be part of the team's play. Um, and all of that is in direct contrast to the man who he's replacing, Fernando Torres. I was just thinking, watching this, I was like, imagine how much Torres must hate Mourinho. Mm. This is just... Ugh. I mean, you know, Torres hasn't done anything to, to de- possibly deserve anything but the contempt and disdain of his manager. But it's just... I, I don't know. After what happened... Uh, One matter? The, well, no. The, I, mean, I mean, after the West Ham... Or, was it, no, it was Crystal Palace match, rather. Mourinho was saying they've got no balls. And he meant Torres. You know, he's talking about Torres. You have no balls. I mean, imagine saying that. <laughs> was that not more general? That was aimed at Shirley more than just Torres. That, uh... we, all know, we all know who the target of that one was, you know? I mean, Torres had missed a late chance in the game. Mourinho was talking about the strikers. Okay, of, yeah, could, yeah, You yeah, could yeah. sort of see who he was, who, what he was driving at there. Um, but Why is the, he doing all this, though? I think he's just uh, maybe, really. He just wants. He, he surely he wants Torres to play as well as he can. Well, yeah. Maybe he doesn't. I'm, I'm simplifying it here. He probably wants to bomb him out of the club. I think so. Yeah, but I think, I think that's, he, I think but, that's what but surely that's going to happen regardless. Maybe it's just Abramovich loves Torres so much, or the idea of Torres and the money that he invested in him that Mourinho has to make it abundantly clear in this very non-subtle way that Torres isn't going to work. Doesn't seem like Abramovich the type of man that you can necessarily just call into his office or onto his yacht and say. Don't fancy this player anymore, boss. Mm. He's got to go. Well, I'd, you know, I mean, Abramovich obviously loved Torres to begin with and paid 50 million for him because he just really wanted to have him. Um, and I'd say probably has fallen out all over them since then because there have been just so many games when he hasn't done anything. Um, with Mourinho, why is he doing this now? I mean, after the Palace game, we were thinking maybe he sees this as the last thing, like a kind of electroshock therapy, you know? Will public derision... 
um, the, the pointed finger. Uh, I don't think so. He's he he looks is. like he's given up on him he, quite a long time. He's got to be honest, from before the season started. So you say that he didn't do anything to deserve his derision. I, I, deserve I, to, uh, deserve anything but his derision. Yeah. I'm not sure. It seemed like it started, if not pre season, very early on in the season, he was talking about having no strikers. When one of his strikers was a guy who, in his earlier part of his career, was one of the top finishers in Europe. Mm. Certainly one of the better players in, in the Premier League. Well, it's incredible the way the, the way that he's fallen. I mean, John Jaws was talking about him last night, you know, and he he had a kind of psychological explanation for it. Um, he put it in terms of the Torres, when he arrived at Liverpool, was some, something of an unknown quantity, was coming into a team where it was very much structured around him and his strengths and maybe the, didn't have quite the pressure of expectation. Um that he was the to later encounter at Chelsea. And he obviously did brilliantly, uh, earned this move. You know, I mean, looking back, maybe it was a mistake. have been falling off. He earned that move, but even at the time, it was seen as, oof, the last year hasn't been great with Liverpool. No, no it hadn't been. And, and it was, and it was, uh, you know, at that time, Torres did seem to have become, have become a bit withdrawn and sort of was blaming people. It's never a good sign, really, when people are, Kind of pointing the finger at you know who have the performances dropped and his mates Reina on his behalf on at least one occasion Pepe Reina has said oh Liverpool weren't using him properly Chelsea aren't using him properly yeah mm, how do you he's use a footballer him? get on the field there and how do you, how do you actually that. use this guy but you know? that said I still think I don't know Mourinho clearly hasn't got the best out of him and no. Mourinho's great strength is supposed to be man management really that he makes everyone feel 10 feet tall which clearly he doesn't because there are quite a few players who are, have fallen by the wayside over him over the years but we'll get into this a little bit more in Ken Early's Report on Sport um, Yeah it's a particular kind of guys I think who, who he likes to work with and Torres you know guys with balls uh, I, I guess is, is how he, it might, seems to be he might put it um, there, there had all day been this weird dorky Twitter interaction between Paris Saint-Germain and Chelsea <laughs> oh no, are there? Yeah. Well, look. Okay. Um, there's there's one thing which is which has gone around the internet a lot, and I'm not I'm not too proud to admit I just don't get it. Uh, I really don't get it. It's a tweet from Paris Saint Germain. You can look at it there, and you can see it. A lot of people will have seen it. It says it's a tweet. It says, "Dear Chelsea fans, for better Parisian souvenirs, better try Montmartre, which is obviously the you know a touristy area of Paris. Mm. They've got uh, a picture of Sacre Coeur, the big uh, white." Uh, cathedral that's on the hill. Sure, you can go get your caricatures done up there. You know, a lot of people. Caricatures. You can buy those birds with flappy wings, clockwork flappy wing oh, birds. A lot of souvenirs, yeah. Um, and you know, absinthe, the that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know what they're talking about here. What? I don't get it. Do you Does get... that mean stay away from from the Parc de Princes? Yeah, you and can't go pick up go do some shopping in Montmartre. I don't think so. I wouldn't say it'd be so unwelcoming to the Chelsea supporters. I wonder if it had something to do with. I mean, are they talking about a souvenir as in the scalp of Paris Saint-Germain? That's a bit macabre of self. Is it some reference to the fact that there were um, incidents in Paris that say if Chelsea fans or alleged Chelsea fans, as I think you're supposed to say, uh, uh, fighting and knocking stuff over and all this kind of stuff? I don't know. But that was only the end uh, of the Chelsea-Paris Saint-Germain because it had been going on all, all day. Um, and it was uh, Paris Saint-Germain saying, Hey, at Chelsea FC, did you know that... PSG at PSG Insides. Biggest home win in the Champions League was a 7-2 against Rosenborg. Uh, bonjour at PSG, say Chelsea. Chelsea's biggest away win in the Champions League. Galatasaray nil. Chelsea 5. Uh, hashtag CFC. Chelsea say, 
Chelsea played five games there, conceding a goal in the Champions League this season. Hashtag CFC. Paris Saint-Germain retort, Hey Chelsea, did you know that Ibra, official Zlatan Ibrahimovic, has scored 10 goals in the Champions League this season? One every 60 minutes? Did you know that Thiago Silva won more than 70% of his defensive duels this season in after Champions League, Chelsea? Uh, hashtag Paris Champions Dream. Chelsea say, Impressive. Did you know that Chelsea have progressed in six of our previous eight quarterfinal ties? Sounds to me, Ken. We all know there's a lot of money in Paris Saint-Germain these days. Yeah. They've spent some of that money in some hotshot young French. Not even French necessarily. They've scoured the world to get the best young digital marketers they can find yeah. to start up these online feuds. Well, there you go. I mean, and here we are talking about it, which shows that we're, well, hey, we've fallen for their marketing works. whole thing. Um, but yeah, that's. are we glimpsing the future of football there? But look, it was just the drama of it. For I wonder what what what, what is really striking about it is that... Jose Mourinho, over the last little while, has been praising and boosting his defenders, his defensive unit to the hilt. Every time he talks about them, after the Palace game, which again was uh, a John Terry own goal, right? That was the winning goal. Uh, John Terry own goal. Obviously, Mourinho's not going to criticize John Terry for an accidental own goal. You know, sometimes it's going to happen to every defender. He says, in sun, in wind, rain... Uh, you know, these guys perform all the time. That's when he was leading up to his, well, what about these strikers? You know, well, what about these guys? But he says, Terry, Aspilicueta, Ivanovic, Cahill, magnificent. Every game, against every type of opponent, magnificent. I want to see the same from everyone else. Last night, John Terry heads the ball straight to Lavezzi for like a disastrous yeah. error in, inside the first couple of minutes. David Luiz gives away a really stupid free kick and then from the resulting free kick, knocks in an own goal. You know, Mourinho, you could hear his, his, the way he talked about that, you know. But the last goal, this is the thing. Mourinho has, has, has got a bit of a fish, uh, a flesh and fowl approach to his squad, where some of the guys are, you know, untouchables. I think he's used that word before in his previous job as Chelsea manager. And you're into that group, you've obviously got the guys he's talking about, Kayle, Ivanovic, Lampard, uh, Ter- you've got Frank Lampard as well, who's been, you know, so mm. over the years. Didier Drogba, even though he plays for Galatas right now. For that last goal, Pastore dribbled past as, as Piliqueta and Lampard as though they weren't there. And then scored a goal inside Petrček's near post. It was a disaster. And it was a joke, as Mourinho described it, that was played on three of his top men in right. that team. The three guys, it's not like he can point at them and laugh like he does at Torres. Or he can say, oh, David Luiz, you know, I don't think he's quite trusted David Luiz. He, he doesn't want to play, play him in central defence anyway. And I don't know what he's going to do with them after last night's disaster. But, you know, when, when you guys who you've been boosting, it's, it's, it's such that even his praise of them now is beginning to sound sarcastic because they're the ones who are, who, whose cock-ups are undermining the, the Chelsea at a, at a really important stage yep. of the season. Um, the other match, obviously, involving an English club was uh, Bayern, um, Bayern Man United. And this was a disappointing match for Bayern Munich, who... We're so, I mean, Iron Robin speak, speaking after the game was, you know, I didn't like the atmosphere. Everyone's saying we're going to win easily. I don't know who he was talking about there. I hope it wasn't the Bayern Munich players who were saying that. He, no, I presume he means media and mm, everything else. No, I don't know. I don't know who he was talking about. I mean, he was he 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 was just alluding to this general air of of expectation that Bayern would would really do it. In the event, what it was like was like someone holding a Rubik's cube with and just sort of endlessly turning it and turning it around in their hands without actually ever making 
an effort to solve it, you know, just to make any changes to it. That's what Bayern Munich were like. They they had the ball for almost the entire game. They got the ball up to Manchester United's third of the field. The United players all defeat, uh, de- defeated, uh, retreated behind the ball, but into the penalty area. And defended like that all night. Robin described it as like a handball team. You described... Pep Guardiola last week, no, on Monday indeed, yeah. as the preeminent tactical mind in European football. Yeah, and yet he couldn't solve that Rubik's cube. Well, this is the, this was the, the troubling thing about it. You know, from a, from a Bayern point of view, I mean, what what Pep Guardiola's football is about is okay. Football is a game with with a lot of elements of chance. You know, you got guys running around. Oftentimes, they don't even know why they're running, where they're running. The ball shoots off their foot at footy angles. Sometimes not the way it's meant to go. There's all kinds of little moments of chance, and a lot, and that you know that's what leads to the game being so unpredictable. Let's try and minimise that aspect of chance as much as we can. Exactly what John Giles says. We'll try to uh, control. We'll try to use the things that we know we can do: passing the ball, controlling the ball, passing it immediately. Like Guardiola's statement of his philosophy is really simple. It's like I get the ball, I pass the ball, I get the ball, I pass the ball, I get the ball, I pass the ball, I get what he means, what he says. And by doing that, let's just. Move the ball up the field. We're going to keep the ball. That's the that's the one way we can be safest from conceding a goal when, mm. when we've got the ball. We'll move it up close to them. And if we keep doing this, they'll eventually lose track of what we're doing and suddenly we're in. It's a tap-in. Now, this type of football is obviously it kind of... That, that idea that let's minimize the risk, let's control the ball, let's try and get to the point where we've got a really high chance of scoring before we even try to score. That mitigates against trying more speculative ways of scoring. Lobbing one in the mixer. Maybe the defender will fall over. Maybe he'll do like David Luiz or John Terry and head it into his own net. You know, let's have a shot from 25 yards. Probably the goalkeeper will save it, but we've seen these go in. Yeah, They don't try any of that kind of stuff. Um, they're always kind of looking to, to like solve the puzzle of the defense, like in a logical way that ends almost with a tap-in. That's the idea. Um, and it's clearly one that works, but... Sometimes you're in a game like that against Manchester United, a team who were, who were up for it, were defending really well. And suddenly it's like, okay, we're going to have to... If you want to get through a defence like Manchester United had, there's three essential ways of doing it. Have a shot from distance. Sometimes it goes in. And Manchester United were covering a lot of the angles very well, and Bayern didn't really try to do that. Because, I mean, you do that, you give the ball away, suddenly they've got a goal kick. Do we have to do that? Is there not a better way? Okay, you can do what... We saw, for instance, Bayern do against Arsenal when Robin won the penalty at the Emirates. You have, as these guys are passing the ball around, this is the form the game is taking, passing the ball around outside the box, switching it from side to side. The United defenders just tracking in a block back and forth, you know? Um, and it wasn't really as though they were being opened up at any stage. It was all in front of the United So team. what's that second way? So you can have, a, like, like Robin did when he won the penalty against Arsenal, or like, for instance, Silva did against Man United for the, in the recent derby at Old Trafford, to run from a deeper position through the defence onto, onto a pass. The movement is taking him through a, a block that's kind of static. And that's a way of cracking open the defence. I mean, Robin did it against Arsenal, won the penalty. Silva against United led to that, led to a goal. There wasn't really any of that type of movement from Bayern, though. It was like all the players were there kind of crowding around. They had United penned in, mm. but all they did was pass the ball around in front. There was no penetration through. The other thing that they could try and do is dribble past the guy, dribble past the guy or a couple of guys. Suddenly, if you if you beat a man, the next defender over has to, he he is forced to come and try and stop you. And suddenly, 
the the block inside has opened up. There's a space inside. You can you can you've you've disrupted what they're trying to do. There is an opening there. Can you find it? They didn't even really try to do that either. Though. There are more ways than that. Go on. Long ball. Well, long ball. Plan B. Well, long ball. The pro, but long ball. Straightforward long ball. Crossing it in. Well, that you know, I mean, they, they, there's no need to play long ball because they're already within 30 meters of the goal. You know, I mean, long Diagonals. ball is diag. I love a good diag. They could have hit some dives, but the the thing was that. They could have hit it with, what What did White York call the Rooney shot? It had a bit of swaz. Swaz. swaz yeah. The most footbally term I've ever heard. Yeah, he could have was hit it. With, a, was a hit that with a lot of yeah. swaz. Was it? Yorkie here. He hit that with a lot of swaz. <laughs> oh, yeah, was it? Yorkie here. Here comes a fairly boring question. But they, what they, uh, Guardiola obviously is, uh, I mean, I think, I think he is a genius. This game doesn't prove anything. What I would say is that when we saw the Barcelona, when we saw the Barcelona teams that he had, they were often faced with the same type of game and the opponents trying to do the same thing. They had got Lionel Messi though, who kind of took care of options two and three, and actually even option one of the ways I was talking about breaking down a packed defense. I mean, in terms of slicing through the defense, where through a space that nobody even realizes is there, by far the best player in the world, maybe the best that there's ever been at this. Bayern don't have anyone like that. What they did do, which was a bit puzzling, and I think was a mistake in hindsight was they picked Thomas Muller as a centre-forward. And he's not a centre-forward. And when I say picked him as a centre-forward, that's wrong, because by picking Muller, what Guardia is saying is, OK, we're not, play, we're not going to play with a centre-forward. They've got... Let's look at what the Manchester United team has. They've got two strong central defenders. OK, Rio Ferdinand hasn't had a great season, but remains fundamentally a good player. Mm, I don't think he is anymore, actually. I don't, I don't think he can... It's similar to Torres. I don't think he can... He's got some smart... Maybe that kind of game uh, mm. suits him quite a lot. It's in front of him. It's like, it's a game in his head. It's about position movement. It's not a game where, oh no, I've suddenly got to win a race or, oh no, there's, there's lots of space. He doesn't like a game where there's a lot of space anymore. He can't play that anymore. But that type of game, you know, he can head away a few balls. Vidic certainly can. Guardiola was thinking, they've got two very strong central defenders, very experienced. Actually, two of the best players in their team are the central defenders. Let's leave those guys with nobody to mark. Let's give them no- nothing to do. You know, I mean, if that's going to be their strength, let's just let's ignore it and focus on other areas. But the problem was that they were so deep. Maybe Guardiola expected a bit more from Manchester in terms of coming after Bayern, thinking we've got to try and get get a, a win here to to get through. But United weren't really interested in that. They were interested in avoiding embarrassment. And Muller didn't really have any space. I mean, he, usually he's a guy who's good at finding kind of people don't notice him wandering around, and he suddenly appears in a good position. But there was no space there. There was nowhere for him to go. If they'd had Mandzukic, who's a really strong, and he came on in the second half and set up the eventual equaliser for Bayern, a really strong player in the middle, okay, it would have been more straightforward maybe for Vidic. Uh, go, well, I, I see who I have to mark. But at least it would give him something to think about. I mean, Bayern had so many chances to cross the ball as they moved the ball around from side to side. So many opportunities to do it, but nobody to cross it to. They didn't even bother, you know? So... I don't know. I think I think it would have been in that type of game. He would have given them a better chance of actually giving David the head. Do you want to talk to about Wayne Rooney's platoon before we? Well, yeah. Ro- Rooney, you know, no sympathy really for Schweinsteiger. Sometimes that Bayern Munich have never profited from this type of thing. Obviously, Alex Ferguson's comments the, the last time, typical Germans, was when Ribery, in his view, exaggerated a chance from Rafael and got Rafael sent off. Uh, Rooney did Franco, this. Franco Germans in that case. Franco Germans. Rooney did the same thing in this case. Schweinsteiger took him down. Rooney went over hilariously, actually. I mean, he's he's, he's not really... 
Is he? Is he not? He's not built for diving. Swan diving, as performed by Wairino. He kind of hung in the air limply. Is he tossed his head back and then sort of fell to the ground? You know, you're like oh, Rudy and Schweinsteiger though got really indignant and came back after he'd been sent off. Came back over to sort of wag his finger at Rooney. He was just looking at him like. Schweinsteiger, you know, you're gone. Stop looking at me. They put it to Robin afterwards. Uh, what do you think? And Robin, what do you think he said? About Rooney diving. Yeah, what do you think he said about the, about the red card? What was Iron Robin's view? I'm sure he thought it was a, a disgrace. Well, he said he didn't think it was a red card, yeah. but he added, you always have to be the bigger man and accept <laughs> the decision. You always must be the big man in a case like this and simply accept that the referee has given... Iron Robin gives great interviews. He does. He's, he's, he's good. He's, he's intelligent, on intelligent their, guy. We see him a lot after they've swatted aside yet another English team and he's talking about how really easy it was and I didn't expect it. This happened to go particularly against Arsenal and Man City in recent seasons. Yeah. I didn't expect it to be this easy. Well, that, that was against was a, Man City, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 but I think I think there was one against Arsenal well, like where uh, just, there was a lot of fun out there. It was amazing. <laughs> and it's just really articulate and really upbeat because they've usually won a game. Yeah, it's, it helps. The, incidentally, Schweinsteiger was then um, became the subject of headlines in the Sun and Daily Mirror in England, both of whom, Bayern Munich have just announced, are going to be banned from covering the return match because of the nature of their headlines, you schwein was the Sun's headline, whereas the Daily Mirror's headline was, you dirty schwein. Uh, Bayern Munich, unimpressed by this, they say, the inverted commas, coverage, close inverted commas, about our player Bastian Schweinsteiger in the English media outlets Daily Mirror and the Sun was, without respect, discriminatory and personally insulting. FC Bayern do not accept this kind of coverage and condemn it utterly, particularly in the Champions League, UEFA, with a huge campaign, appeals to the European audience to show respect. All players wore this word on their shirts and all participants in the competition are obliged to maintain respect. Bayern Munich will not hand any accreditation to Daily Mirror or The Sun representatives for the Champions League return like Bayern Munich versus Manchester United. So the Mirror um, uh, head of sport, Dan Silver, says, uh, oh, you know, come on, it was just a pun. Chill out, Bayern. But uh, Bayern, I think it's funny. Schwein obviously means pig in German. Swine, in fact, is what it means, I suppose, literally. Doesn't the uh, isn't it the Bild newspaper in Germany? Bild, yeah. Not, doesn't that push the boat out sometimes in... Oh, yeah. I mean... In, in sort of those kind of goading headlines? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, all the time. I'm not going uh, around banning, clo- banning newspapers. Getting a, bit, getting a bit precious about that. But I suppose, you know, you pig, you dirty pig. It, well, you, know, right. if, you know, as opposed to an, to an English ear, the word schwein just sounds like a kind of funny word that German soldiers say in World War II movies um, and also happens to be the first component of Bastian Schweinsteiger's name which means pig uh, pig mounter apparently um, although I don't know if this is true maybe apocryphal Owen, but apparently the, it, you know the way that you, you get names which are like Muller for instance means Miller which is the man who grinds the flour to make the bread mm-hmm. uh, Becker I think means Baker Boris, I'm not sure, Boris I'm Baker sure. But, but uh, you know, I mean, the word Baker, the, the name Baker in English is, is, okay, someone in this person's family history was a baker. That's where you get the name. And there's, there's all that kind of things. Apparently, Schweinsteiger is another example of this, although Pig Mounter, one wonders exactly what it was that they did. Apparently, uh, now I heard, again, on this name. doesn't matter. It's going out there and it's getting out there in the airways. Is that, um, it's the name given to the person who would clamber on top of the pig and hold them down to be slaughtered. Somebody had to do it. It's an unpleasant job. Back in the day, somebody had to do it. I'm sure there's some awful machine that does that kind of thing now. But back in the day, it was a job that had to be done by somebody. And it seems it seems that that is the derivation of the name. We talked about the World Cup strips, particularly the English World Cup strip, 
on Monday's show. And well, what our focus, my focus, Ken, I was just blown away by the figure-hugging nature of these jerseys and, indeed, the rather exorbitant price. Mm. But there's something else you want to make a point about. The, the price, incidentally, which you've been joined, Owen, uh, by David Cameron. In oh, we have David Cameron joined at the hip again. Voicing objections. That's all uh, Cameron's saying, isn't it? Uh, oh, he just said it's very expensive. I think it's terrible. Uh, but what I think, on, on mature reflection now, the most offensive thing about the, about the whole England strip is the fact that it's all white. And... This is just wrong. Okay, sometimes England wore all white. I mean, I think the famous match against Argentina in 98. And they may even have worn all white at the last World Cup. It's always all white or near enough, isn't it? No, it was always, it was usually white with blue shorts or navy blue shorts. You know, white, black. It's a kind of Spurs type look. Um, Although, hang on, Spurs usually had the blacks. England usually had white socks. But um, FIFA have issued, the reason for this is not just. well, it's partly due to a directive from FIFA that they want all teams to have jerseys or strips which are of one colour. And apparently the reason for this is that um, it has to do with the... They, they say that it's, for, it's to enhance the high-definition pictures broadcast from Brazil and to avoid confusion. I say, when you, you mean that each team, their short socks and... All of one colour. So Spain are going to be wearing all red in the World Cup. They look like Liverpool or Roma. or well, Roma aren't all red. What are we talking about? So if we were in there, we'd be all green. That's what you're saying. All green, yeah. Throw, throw on a pair of green boots there as well. Which we have, we have worn all green yeah. previously in, in World Cup matches. Uh, maybe, was, were we wearing it at the Euros? Italy have, are going to be all blue. Germany, uh, apparently also one colour. Um, not every country, thankfully, is going well. I just don't understand why you would... Bring in a rule like that. I mean, this is okay. This may just be a reflection of my own train spotterish tendencies. But why would you want to uh, erase the sort of history of what countries wear? You know, Brazil have said, "Forget it, FIFA. We're going to wear our Brazil okay. yellow yellow shirt, blue shorts, white socks. We're going to wear it. We don't care." Sometimes they they wear blue socks as well, which I f- find visually offensive. France have said they're going to uh, they're going to. Uh, continue wearing their white shorts with their blue I just don't understand it just seems well it's hardly the worst thing FIFA have ever done worst directive ever this one of the, it's, I find it actually one of the more annoying things FIFA have ever done top 10 I'd put it a, I'd put it in top 7 to seven to 10 yeah. top 7 to 10 annoying things FIFA have done uh, yeah well I'll tell you what's number 1 on that list Ken for FC Barcelona that yeah. is banning them from any activity in the next couple of transfer windows this is, yeah. And I, okay, when I heard this story first, I mean, I heard, actually overheard someone mentioning it. I was walking around and I heard someone say, Barcelona, but bad for inciting players for two for a year. And I was like, what? I think in, I was almost in the point of turning around and going back to the person saying, what are you talking about? What's, <laughs> what's that about Barcelona? I just heard this. On, and then I was like, ah, that old Neymar deal, dirty, dirty Barcelona. Must have, FIFA must have thought, well, we can't put up with this kind of, Transfer corruption. And of course, it's got nothing to do with Neymar at all. It's entirely based on their um, uh, international transfers of really young players, you know, players who no one's heard of. Um, well, when we say no one's heard of them, it's not as though they're, uh, you know, nameless individuals. Um, so, so they're got, so Barcelona are taking. Well, what I'm a bit confused about is there, but what, Bar, there's been some irregularity in Barcelona's transfers into their club of. Players under the age of eighteen. FIFA have got a system. I've got a big computer database called the FIFA Transfer Matching System, and uh, all transfers in world football have to be logged with this. Now, the 
computer or whoever's overseeing the system will check, I suppose, that the transfers are all in or, all abide by all the regulations that FIFA have governing this type of thing. So the relevant regulations that they have governing the transfer of players who are who, who are minors um, across international borders are that they can only so international youth transfers can only take place if number one the player's parents have moved to the new country for non-football uh, reasons, right? So oh, their parents happen to have moved to this country and then Russia well, might as well join up with this club. I could see loopholes around in and around that. Absolutely, like, there are there are there are a few loopholes there. I'm sure someone will be looking at those. Um, two, if the player if the player's home is less than fifty kilometers from the international border that he will be crossing. So, say for instance, um, oh, I don't know. I mean, a player grows up in like this the Basque country in the south of France, and then he joins uh, like Athletic Bilbao or whatever. That's fine. No, it's actually that's a bad example because because the third reason is if the move takes place within the European Union and the player's age between sixteen and eighteen. So there's a kind of an exemption within Europe. Okay. Um, but uh, the the essentially the players uh, named in association with this are all young players: uh, Lee Sung Lee Woo, Jang Gyal He, Pike Sung Ho, all of South Korea; Theo Chandri of France; uh, Bobby Adekanye of Nigeria; Patrice Susi of Cameroon. Uh, Take Kubo of Japan, Kays Ruiz Atiel of France. Well, the French ones confused Mazid me straight Diallo away. Because of Guinea and Ben Lederman of the United States. Yeah. The French ones confused me straight away because they're in the EU. But maybe, um, the, but maybe the, uh, that player, and I don't know anything about this player, Theo Chandri, uh, is aged under 16. So if a player is aged under 16, they can't do it anyway. I mean, one of the players, uh, Ben Lederman, the one I mentioned there, moved to Barcelona from California, aged just 11. Uh, along with his parents. So FIFA have said, you've broken the regulations in all these cases, therefore we're, you're not going to be allowed to sign players in the next two transfer windows. Pfft, what Barcelona going to do about that? That's a huge punishment. It's huge, it's huge. Massive punishment. And Barcelona, Barcelona are obviously squealing over this and, and are going to take it to appeal and may succeed. In, They're going in, to the court of arbitration for support uh, if they need to. Well, yeah, all, all the way to there if, they, if, they, if necessary. But... If they weren't able to get a lift, I mean, they've already got a situation where Puyol said he's leaving the club. Valdez has said he's leaving the club and now has a cruciate ligament injury. They've agreed to sign the goalkeeper Marc-Andre Ter Stegen from Mönchengladbach. Can that deal now go through? Nobody knows. Um, uh, Xavi was, was rumoured to be thinking of leaving the club. I don't think that's going to be happening now. Certainly if they can't get this ban lifted. So suddenly... They already having looking, at, they were looking at this summer as well, we actually need to buy quite a few players this summer. They're in, suddenly in a position where they're really, really. They cool. issued a statement today as well. People can get a look at it online there if you Google it or have a look for it on Twitter. So I think about a fourteen-point statement, a lot of which surrounded the uh, promotion of their own uh, La Messiah complex. And they they say, look, we get young players in, we treat them brilliantly, and they have education and they have great football education. Oh, so why are you picking on us, FIFA? But you can have we, a look at that. We yourself. produce we produce people before athletes. Yeah. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. Mm. You remember my grandmother? No disrespect. When I used to get in trouble, she looked at me and said, "Hmm." And I knew a butt whooping was coming at the. I'm an alien. Think about it. Roy Jones is born. Jane Jane James Tony is born. I ran Barkley is born. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien.
tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. I should have been on this game 15, maybe 20 years ago, man. And then that's why I said I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. But I'm telling you right now. I'm an alien. Just Google it and get your own information. I'm an alien. You should be going. I'm an alien. Google it. I'm an alien. Mm. I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Simon Cooper wrote a big piece about Paris Saint-Germain in the Financial Times over the weekend, just chatting about their rebranding and the scale of their um, their ambition, which you can probably guess is a fairly large scale. There was a glory night for them in Paris yesterday, Simon. Did it seem like a breakthrough win for them? The next logical, I, mean, I don't know if I'm overstating this, is the next logical step in the build-up of a football monster? I think so. I mean, exactly a year ago last night, they played against Barcelona in the quarterfinals. And they were doing very well. And then Messi came on half fifth. He'd been injured. And uh, Carlo Ancelotti, the PSG coach, said later that when Messi came on, his players just lost confidence. You know, Messi's aura dimmed them. And uh, Barcelona narrowly went through. And I think now the PSG players see themselves as belonging on this stage. You know, they have as much right to be there as Chelsea. And um, they seriously believe they can win the Champions League. And, um, you know, with a bit of luck, because 3-1 was, uh, flatters them a bit, uh, they now look likely to get to the semis. It sounded like a pretty excited crowd there last night as well, Simon. It sounded more like uh, the kind of fervent atmosphere you would hear at a really big French rugby match. Um, old-style PSG fans would say in the 90s it was all much lively, and it probably was. And um, there has been an attempt by the club to sort of get rid of their old fans much like we saw in England in the 90s. A uh, bit of gentrification has gone on. So the stadium is quieter than it used to be. But certainly, I mean, people were really excited because uh, Paris, 12 million people, hasn't done anything in football for a very, very long time. And, uh, I mean, I noticed even at lunchtime today, there was, you know, Paris is about having lunch. And uh, the guy at the next table to me was talking about Paris Saint-Germain, which is the kind of thing that three years ago just never happened. Three years ago in Paris, it was as if football didn't exist. And now, you know, last night, people in cafes all over town watched that game on TVs. I must say that the team they have seems to have got very strong very quickly. I mean, uh, obviously, they've spent huge sums on players like... Um, Zlatan and Cavani and uh, and Pastore, who who ended up scoring the third goal last night, but the player who really stands out for me is uh, Verratti. What player he is! I mean, I d- what's bizarre is to see a player who's so young um, and from a country where where the best players tend really tend to stay in their own league anyway, completely bossing um, uh, the the centre of PSG's midfield. I mean, that kid is fantastically confident. Uh, They call him the mini Pirlo. He's a player very like Andrea Pirlo. And, you know, what you're seeing now is an emptying, a talent drain from Italy to France. So most of PSG's team, Italian or not, was recruited in Italy. And Verratti, I mean, nobody had heard of him. And he's been a wonderful find. I mean, he's the best passer in the team. And it's amazing to see possibly the world's best defender, Thiago Silva, just shove the ball into Verratti's feet. Like, you know, here, you're 20 years old, you give the pass because um, he can do that. He's immensely confident. Um, you know, Chelsea had this. Chelsea pressed him in possession because they know that he'll never just, just wham it away or give a back pass. He'll always keep looking for the long ball forward. So, I mean, he reminded me about, like, it was like a quarterback, um, you know, dodging and weaving, trying not to be sacked 
while looking for the perfect splitting pass. I mean, yeah, everyone who's watched Paris for the last couple of years is very aware of Verratti's talents, and pretty soon most of the world will know about him as well. You uh, had spoken to some of the, some of the uh, principals at uh, at Paris uh, for this piece that, that was in the Financial Times over the weekend, um, and Mourinho, in his in his pre-match press conference, made reference as usual to the fact that how can this club possibly be abiding by financial fair play? I mean, it's completely, you know, they they were talking to you about how they want to become the biggest club in Europe, you know, a Real Madrid-sized super club uh, over the next couple of years. But it seems fairly clear that they, you know, who can really do that without a lot of, uh, let's say, sugar daddy investment? Um, that is an argument. I think they're going to get rounded. I think they're going to be okay because about half of um, their income, <coughs> sorry, somewhere over 200 million euros, comes from Qatar, mostly from the Qatar Tourism Authority. And what PSG says is this is not a donation. But um, through PSG, Qatar is branding itself. This is nation branding. And the nation branding market, PSG say, is worth $200 billion a year. I mean, I don't know how they came up with that figure. But anyway, countries do spend a lot on nation branding. I'm sure Ireland does as well. And uh, they say, well, Qatar has found that it's a very cost-efficient way to do it for a major football club, Um, which may be true, may not be true, but certainly is a reasonably credible defense that UEFA will find hard to show is completely ridiculous. So I'm pretty confident that PSG's spending will be allowed to stand. Uh, So I'm going to ask you if you think this PSG revolution is good for football, because maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago, certainly the idea of uh, clubs just suddenly becoming super clubs through money that's poured into them, was a reasonably new thing and maybe people uh, football fans took a while to adapt to it but we've seen it with quite a few clubs now and a lot of them are in the latter stages of the Champions League are we conditioned enough as football fans now to not really care anymore where the money comes from or more to the point not really care that this club is only achieving uh, so suddenly because they've had this money is the money almost irrelevant now and should we all just welcome Paris Saint-Germain um I mean, the fact is that people do seem to accept clubs like Manchester City, Chelsea, Paris Saint-Germain. I mean, Chelsea did it 10 years before, and, you know, the stadium is full, and people, uh, you know, people who aren't Chelsea fans watch them and respect their quality. So I think that if you look at the fact that the stadiums are full in these leagues where there are a lot of sugar daddies, it seems to me to suggest that fans are not sitting at home in disgust. They're not saying, oh, you know, I preferred it when there wasn't the sugar daddy money and now I'm not going to go and watch. I mean, in the Premier League with all the sugar daddies, those clubs uh, sell out. And in Paris, you know, three years ago there were no sugar daddies and um, you could always get a seat. And now it's impossible to get a seat for a Paris Saint-Germain match. I mean, I think there's a lot of acceptance here because you've got a region of 12 million people, Paris. You've got one top division club and it wasn't any good for years. And so there was an enormous pent-up appetite for good football. And in France as a whole, I mean, this is a country that has had very little success in European competition. And so all over France, you know, football fans are excited, not all of them, but most of them, that a French club has a credible chance of, of winning the Champions League. I mean, you know, for a newspaper like L'Equipe, the sports newspaper here, Paris Saint-Germain are a fantastic gift. I mean, imagine if an Irish club... Uh, suddenly got that kind of investment and was challenging for the Champions League. I mean, people would complain about the, the sugar daddy money, no doubt, but they'd still be very excited. Yeah, probably be able to find a way to put up with it all right. But I just wanted to ask, Simon, uh, while we have you, what your view is on um, on how Jose Mourinho has been doing since his return to Chelsea, because they've lost three out of five matches now at a kind of awkward time of the season. 
And Mourinho seems to be taking a leaf out of the book of Tim Sherwood uh, in, in recent weeks by criticising his players in, you know, in quite a sarcastic way. Often, I mean, last night he was again expressing pretty much open contempt for Fernando Torres and, and some of his other strikers. Um, is, this, is this Mourinho being very clever or, or displaying maybe some of the traits that caused the Real Madrid players to fall out of love with him? Yeah, it does seem to be a trait of latter-day Mourinho because, I mean, he, he can't take losing. And so from about 2004 to 2010, he was immensely successful, you know, winning league titles, winning Champions Leagues. And then he went to Madrid and he wasn't so successful. And at Chelsea, you know, again, now it's getting disappointing. And he doesn't seem able to deal with defeat. So in victory, he, he you know, takes care to um, always praise his players and be, be mates with his players in a way that, say, Alex Ferguson or Arsene Wenger have never tried. So uh, Mourinho's strategy was matiness and um, we all love each other here. And yet when they lose, he seems to go for what, you know, all the management guide handbooks would tell you is a bad idea blaming the players in public because then the players get fed up with you and that happened at Real Madrid and of course it allows him to say if he leaves Chelsea at the end of the season well it wasn't my fault it was because the players are rubbish but it's not a it's not a long-term strategy I don't think it's uh, canny intelligence I think it's just uh, bad temper okay listen Simon thanks so much thank you interesting that Simon classified Mourinho's career already into almost like Torres there's a, there's a, there's a pre there's a sort of up to 2010 Torres and then yeah. post or whatever year it might have been where he started declining I don't know because Mourinho did win the league once with Real Madrid but if he's not successful with Chelsea then you start this is all happening in the last few weeks by the way like, up, up until now I've actually thought in fact it's recently it's two weeks ago I was saying can't believe that Manchester United didn't take Mourinho on yeah. I still think he's at least one of the best managers in Europe oh abs- I think so too absolutely um might be uh, bitter to be writing off this part of his career just yet. I mean, uh, yeah, I think so. But I suppose what Simon's saying there is if you look at his career, look at it in terms of the domestic title. He can't win the Champions League every year. He's, he's managed to win it twice with different teams and, and got close on other occasions, um, got to a number of semifinals. But look at the domestic championship. In 2003, he wins it with Porto. 2004, he wins it with Porto. 2005, wins it with Chelsea. 2006, wins it with Chelsea. 2007, doesn't win. Is sacked the start of the following season. Next season, he's in with Inter. 2009, he wins Scudetto with Inter. 2010, wins the league with Inter. So, of the seven full seasons that he's been in charge at a club, he's won the domestic championship six times. You know, okay, that's pretty successful. Since then, uh, takes over at Real Madrid. 2011, doesn't win the league. 2012, does. 2013, doesn't. And... It leaves the club in bitter acrimony. We could now be looking at uh, 2014. Again, doesn't win. So that's one in the last four. So it's very different from six and seven. And especially if the team that they actually lose to turns out to be Liverpool, that would not be that would not sit well with Jose Mourinho. We are joined by Raphael Honigstein now to talk a little bit, Raphael, about the draw that uh, on Tuesday night and almost looking ahead already to the second leg. It seems like... It's a funny situation. We're talking about this at the start of the show where a 1-1 draw away from home for Bayern Munich in the Champions League against Manchester United is seen as a pretty bad result. Is there some disappointment that they they couldn't do what Manchester City did at Old Trafford or what Liverpool did at Old Trafford? There's a slight sense of disappointment. If you look behind um, the veneer of of, of words, I mean, everybody spoke of their satisfaction with the result, that it's a good result, maybe even a great result is... Callum Drummond, you could put it, but I think they 
expected more of themselves and more in terms of the results. And I think that it was a reflection of where Bayern are and, of course, also where United are perceived to be, that maybe the fact that this tie is still alive can be seen as Bayern not doing their job properly. Um, much was made in the English media of uh, the slightly irritable exchange between Guardiola and the Guardian reporter Jamie Jackson. Was that an atypical uh, from Guardiola? I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting this actually really was a big deal, first of all, Rafael, but he, he did seem maybe a little bit tense. Yeah, I mean, it was delivered with a smile, but it was very icy. And he did look a bit irritated after the... Um, repeated questions towards David Moyes' um, negativity, negativity in tactical terms. I mean, that's the, how the journalist put it. I think Guardiola was very aware that a trap was being laid here for, it, for him and he didn't want to step into it. But, no, I think it's, it, it feeds into this general sense that I had when I was there on, Wednesday and, uh, on Tuesday and speaking to one or two players and the officials that... They expected more. They they wanted to show up and maybe put in the kind of performance that you saw when they played the other Manchester team in the group stage, as Man City, the three-one, which is probably up until now uh, still the highlight of Guardiola's um, reign as far as the level of performance that they reached that night is concerned. Yeah, I mean the the point that the reporter had been making was it was was Manchester United had played in quite a negative way. Um, for a team that's been 20 times champions of their own league. And, and I think that's fair enough. Arjen Robin, after the match, uh, said that it was like playing against a handball team, uh, yeah. the, way, the way that they'd defended so much. But, of course, it's, Manchester United are entitled to play whatever way they, they think is going to help them win or you know, get the result they're looking for. Did the match show up some of the limitations of, or rather maybe add a little bit of weight to the criticisms of people like Franz Beckenbauer um, of the Bayern team. Yeah, the passing is great. The, the domination of possession and, and territory is great. Where are all the shots? Yeah, I mean, they had, they had 16 shots at goal, I think. Um, the problem is for this team is the system works so well that when the opposition buys into it, in a sense, completely concedes the ball and the space, uh, at least the 80 metres outside there on the box, then uh, Bayern struggle. And they struggle when they don't have the sharpness in front when they don't have a striker. I think not playing Mario Mandzukic turned out to be a mistake. And I'm sure that Guardiola will rectify that. But you could see uh, from his movements on the touchline exactly what he didn't like. He wanted them to be a lot quicker in transition. He wanted them to switch the ball a lot more often from flank to flank to make uh, this back four or back eight run a lot more from United and he wanted much more precision when it came to crossing it low. They had one or two opportunities where you could see the final ball just wasn't quite right. And it's an interesting argument to be had. Is that is that now a result of them being a little bit complacent? Because in the Bundesliga, they know they can play at 85% and still find a way to win. Or was it just a case that on the night, the last ball just didn't happen and then on another night, it will happen. So... I'm not quite sure there's something dramatically wrong with the system itself. I think it was more a case of implementing it not too well on the night. Rafael, any uh, time Manchester United play a match today, you always get the feeling that they could be just one game away from David Moyes losing his job. There's always a speculation now he's been 
his team have been good enough anyway to beat a couple of the poor teams in the Premier League recently. So they're they're they've kind of warded off that to a certain extent. Do you think that the second leg of the Champions League, if he bows out in style, if they Man United lose three two, for example, in Munich, would that be enough maybe to convince the uh, Manchester United board to keep him on at least in the summer, possibly even longer? It seems to me um, that it's not even a question about the second results anymore. I think they are determined to stick with him, to give him time in the summer. I also think, you know, that the great, amazing managers who might make a direct improvement up, perhaps not on the market. So I think that United as a club have already come to that decision. They want to keep on with Moyes. Of course, an absolute demolition an embarrassing scoreline might have changed that, but it won't come to that. It rarely does in the Champions League. You saw it also with Bayern against Arsenal, just how relatively close those ties were. And I think that's probably enough for him as far as the season's concerned. So I think it's, it all worked out rather well for him, the whole playing thing, the sense that they are complete underdogs, and also the public's acceptance that they can just sit back and, and try and play on the counter-attack, which is not something that, I think before the start of the season, too many people would have um, liked to see. Yeah, okay. Raphael Honigstein, brilliant stuff. Thank you. Pleasure. Yeah, it's interesting that whatever about the rest of the season, I think from a way back, I think it looked clear enough. There was that tricky week where Manchester United were facing three tough matches culminating in Manchester City. And fortunately for them, they won the middle one of that. Was that West Ham? Was it that weekend? Mm. It took a small bit of heat off. As I mentioned, they've kind of taken care of a couple of... They picked some low-hanging fruit over yeah, the last few yeah, weeks yeah. just to keep ticking over there. So, therefore, the Man City defeat didn't, wasn't thrown into as sharp a light. But whatever about the rest of the season, I'm somewhat surprised that Rafael seems so confident that Manchester United will stick with him in the longer term. And Rafael, I don't think, is the only one. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I've heard from some other people who were at that game. does seem to have been a... Uh, well, you know, whether Manchester United maybe briefing some journalists or whatever. The point about it is that if you're Manchester United, you're always going to express total confidence in David Moyes right up until the moment when you announce who's going to replace him. You know, because there's no point in having a manager and and undermining him until you've literally decided who it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Kind of points in. in the director, the direction of Cardiff City. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Cardiff City have shown another way to do it. In Manchester United's case, you know, they're expressing confidence in Moyes. And and I do think that uh, while that may very well be reflective of an underlying conviction, okay, we're going to stick, we're going to stick with Moyes. Maybe as Raphael was saying, that partly comes from a sense of we've looked around and we don't see anyone really leaping out at us who would come in and definitely do better. So maybe, maybe there's not if there's no alternative that can that immediately impresses us as, as a better alternative. But, uh, so there's nobody better than David Moyes for this job. I don't think that's true, but no. they may they may be thinking, well, who's available? Who could we get? Mm, we're not. But who's really available? Sure. Everybody's available technically. You know, well, mm. technically, though, people, I'm, I'm kind of wrong there. Everybody can become available mm. if you throw the money at them or are prepared to do whatever things football clubs do to yeah. make it known to this manager that you might. It doesn't have to be a currently unemployed manager. Yeah, I mean, it could be, and and then I, I I could be reading it completely wrongly, and it could be a case if they've just said no, David Moyes is our man. He's we our man, yeah. we gave him a six year contract, and that's because we believe and we knew that there would be tough times. But we at Manchester United have resolved to walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain. <laughs> 
Um, I don't know if they would if they would, would they write have to the walk alone that way. Through that, I, don't, I I really don't ever see that happening. Don't I don't think they would ever have to walk alone. Do you ever listen to the first show we put out today that featured Anthony Moyles and Carl Mannion on the Sky TV deal with regards to the GA and also David Wallace is very interesting on Rob Penny in the build up to the Munster to lose match at the weekend. He's been talking about referees and the some general this is Rob Penny he's been talking about referees but specifically mentioned uh, uh, who's the referee again at the weekend, Nigel Owens, and said, I hope Nigel has his game face on. It was a passing enough reference, but it's just another strange bit of psychological uh, preparation for a big game by Rob Penny. And David Wallace certainly felt that the timing of the uh, general this general conversation about referees and the angle of it was a little bit strange. He thinks it's better to talk about these things at other times of the year, not the build-up to a Heineken Cup quarter-final. But that's it from Second Captain's Football, the Irish Times. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again. Thanks, Al. Thanks very much for listening. Follow us on Twitter at secondcaptainsfacebook.com forward slash secondcaptains. We'll talk to you later. Take care. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 